Hello and welcome to the Aesthetic Distance Podcast. This is your host, Eliza Romero, and with me today are three guests. Jess Ree, who is a friend of the show and frequent guest. Hey. Teen Shang, who is a founder and co-host of the podcast, Escape from Plan A. Hey, how's it going? And Adrian Bonifacio, who is an activist and the national chairperson of Anakbayan USA. Hey, thanks for having me. Have you guys been watching any of Netflix? Um, does anybody here watch Ingretzigo? That show just is, is my jam. That's my show. Did you watch the first season? Because uh, the second season dropped on Friday. Yeah, I watched the first season, I think, at least five times. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, se- seriously, five I, times. I think I've seen it close to twice. Yeah, the first season I think I've, I've watched close to twice. Aggressico just gets me. I'm, I'm lagging behind. It's like if Hello Kitty just got real about sexism and and like modern day anxieties. Does she discover Marxism in season two? Because she's ripe for that. <laughs> the workers revolt. <laughs> oh yeah, she's right there. She's very close. So I'm at the episode. I'm in episode like three where Anai shows up, that coworker, and I think that I think that we're gonna have like a love triangle coming Ooh. up soon. That's my prediction. It doesn't sound like anybody in here has made it past past where I am. Yeah, I'm saving it. I, I, need, I, like, need, to, I, I need either I, I, a fantastic day or a terrible day to start watching it. Why does Gretzko always solve her problems through relationships? I need her to solve it through a worker revolt. That's what that's, that's what's, going, what's going on <laughs> over there in Tokyo. You know what I mean? They need to organize. <laughs> there you go. Uh, in the last episode of this podcast, I talked about the U.S. trade wars with Simran Singh, and we talked on a lot of the new alliances that were being formed between foreign nations. But what we didn't talk about was all the escalating tensions between nations as these alliances have shifted. We also didn't talk about escalating tensions between countries that have always had uneasy relationships or about what happens when rising powers meet established powers. We can imagine a significant threat to a U.S. ally, like if it's Japan or South Korea, India, Taiwan or the Philippines. All of these countries are already in conflict with China, so if any sort of militarized conflict happens, the U.S. would most likely get sucked in. Since we're just speculating, a war between India and China would probably be the worst possible situation because not only would the U.S. get sucked in, but also Pakistan and Russia. While the field of battle will depend on the cause of conflict, we can expect that the most crucial theater of war will be the West Philippine Sea. And the U.S. itself seems poised to enter a war with China, and there's a huge chance it will be fought in the Philippines. Russia got themselves involved. In April of this year, they sent two of their warships. What we have is all three world powers embroiled in a dick-measuring contest in Philippine territory. That, that was a big development, um, see, seeing the Russians there and being as aggressive as they are. Um, you know, it's... It's called the South China Sea, I guess, in, in um, popular parlance in English. In, in Chinese, they just refer it to as the South Sea, Nanhai. Uh, I guess in the Philippines, they refer to the West Philippine Sea. South China Sea being sort of the American term for it. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, you say that the U.S. would get sucked into it. But, you know, South, the West Philippine Sea is, you know, essentially the Caribbean of, the, of Southeast Asia and South, in South Asia. So... The U.S. presence there, to me, has always seemed a bit um, imperial. Uh, I'm not sure of all the countries that have active presences there, it would seem the U.S. that would be the most... uh, Aggressive? Most aggressive. And now Russia, obviously, being there is similar to, I think, the the Americans being there. So I'm wondering if the Russians were... I mean, it seems seems like China and Russia have really amped up their... um, their their military uh, uh, cooperation in light of U.S. hostilities towards both countries. So it just makes sense. But um, yeah, it seems that people are getting drawn into that area. Um, but I would start, I guess for me, I would always start with the idea that American presence there is quite uh, sort of a relic of, um, you know, going way back to World War II. So I, I, I guess I guess I start from that frame as the why is why is America there to begin with? I can understand that the Philippines have a claim to what is essentially their their backyard, 
um, and that there would be a, a conflict with China, which also claims that you know it. You know, there's there's clearly territorial claims that need to be sorted out between the countries that um, that that line the line that sea. Um, but why America is involved, I think, is a holdover from from World War II and this ongoing American imperial uh, presence in in Asia. I mean, I think World War II was a was it's a legit it was a legitimate uh, in the U.S.'s perspective expansion. But it stems all the way back from you know 1898, the the you know the actual conflict that was imperial in nature in the Philippines. So it seems like continued U.S. presence and aggressive U.S. presence in that area is just because they can. It's a very it's a very uh, active symbol of aggression, not necessarily towards the Philippines. It's it's a, well towards the Philippines. It's a message that you know it's. The U.S. still treats the Philippines as a colonial holding, but it's a message to China. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that because the, you know, the Philippines has been a colony of the U.S. You know, for the first half of the 20th century, um, it's kind of uh, the, the initial outlook of it was that the Philippines is kind of this launching pad for geopolitical interest in uh, the Asia Pacific. It was really the the U.S.'s kind of first foray into being an imperial power and, and the Philippines ended up being one of the first um, victims of it. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure if, if th there have been a bunch of funny memes going around of um, like where the US is involved, where there's um, oil. And so um, they're like uh, images of like, um, like uh, blackhead removers or different things <laughs> or like oily pizza. And then they, they Photoshop like American troops on there. And I, I'm just bringing this up because the, the West Philippine Sea is also um, the site of large uh, natural gas deposits, oil deposits. Um, and so not only is it a kind of geopolitical interest of the, the US to be there, but there's, there's huge natural resources there as well. I apologize for the pun, but that literally adds fuel to the fire here because the Philippines just are <laughs> so rich in natural resources. The story of the 20th century in the Philippines is is uh, the Philippines getting plundered, really. I mean, in an, and in an era when you know natural when natural oil deposits are getting scarcer and scarcer, I I can see that becoming um, either the reason or at least a pretext for for real conflict in that area. Right. It's interesting that. Um... I mean, we were talking about how the Philippines is kind of the U.S.'s first um, imperial target. Um, from there, it, it really rose as a, a superpower, an imperialist superpower in the world. Um, but then, you know, in the past few decades, um, because of, of its ongoing crisis in, in the U.S., um, you know, the, the Great Recession hit, all these other economic downturns hit. Um, and so we're to a point where, you know, the U.S. is no longer the only superpower. Um, and it's interesting that the, the Asia Pacific, again, has become this um, theater for, for like who can flex their imperialist uh, powers the most, um, where it was in that theater that, that the U.S. kind of started its imperial project too. Yeah, but I guess the question I have now is, is that, because it, it seems like the setup here is to say that we're again, you know, Philippines is caught in between um, a battle between rival colonial powers and i'm questioning whether china is actually a colonial power or whether you know the that they're actually all there's you know there's a clearly bona fide you know territorial disputes in the south china sea or the west philippine sea um that's a result of um the countries that actually have claims there so i don't know if china's involvement there is really uh, a matter of colonial expansion versus a regional dispute that I think should be resolved either bilaterally or through, uh, you know, is it pronounced a uh, Asian, uh, the Southeast Asian uh, sort of international community, um, which is which has got, gained a lot of strength in the past uh, few years. I gather um, it seems like ASEAN's actually sort of a resurgent uh, forum, and I just I don't know why the, you know. And I think this is probably the source of some of the, uh, you know, frustration on China's part, is this need for the countries in that region uh, to always reflectively go towards European institutions uh, or European-dominated institutions, uh, and using you know something like UNCLOS 
and uh, arbitration in, in Europe to solve what's a, you know, inherently Asian territorial dispute. So um, are you saying that, are you saying that the map that they're using, like um, the nine dash line, you think that those historical claims are, are the ones that are the nine, valid? The, no, I mean, the not, well, no, the nine dash line represents China's claim, right? I don't think it represents anyone else's claim. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying that people have to respect China's, you know, map. I don't even know where it came from. Uh, but what I'm saying is that, um, the U S the U S having an involvement in this is a little bit different than China having involvement because China actually has territorial claims as does the Philippines, as does Vietnam, as does, as does Indonesia, as does Malaysia, as does Taiwan, uh, they're they actually have a, you know they actually have competing claims that need to be uh, worked out, whereas America does not. So America's involvement in this seems to be the you know a little bit different, right? And I think that is definitely part of you know I think the project of American I don't know if colonialism in this case is exactly the right word, but you know the the tendency for us to sort of exert jurisdiction pretty much anywhere it wants, right? Including places where it has no claim. And that's to serve us interests. So I could see the us trying to get involved in this dispute and it already is, um, I don't know the extent to which, uh, us policymaking has been involved. Um, but it would be in the U.S.'s interest to lend support, in this case, to the Philippines against China's claim. And this is more as antagonism against China than as any symbol, you know, any gesture of solidarity with uh, the Philippines. I think that's right. I mean, yeah. So what's the I, I mood in the, in the Philippines here? Um, I, it's, I, I know there's strong resistance to imperialism, um, on all fronts, and unfortunately, the Philippines is caught between uh, several, several, you know, basically all of the world powers that are on the stage now. Um, so the Philippines are in a kind of a tough situation um, in resolving the issue with the South over the South China Sea, the West Philippine Sea. Would they accept U.S. aid? I think it's we we have to also make a distinction that it's it's not just um, kind of a territorial dispute kind of in in that's being held through official channels or through negotiations but that there is um, aggression being had um, Filipino fishermen um, fisher folk communities that are that use the West Philippine Sea as kind of their their um, fishing grounds uh, have been intimidated there was recently a boat that was sank um, after a Chinese ship rammed into it um, leaving uh, uh, almost uh, two dozen Filipino uh, fisher people stranded. Um, and so, yeah, there, um, it, it was actually a Vietnamese ship that came along to, to save them because um, they, yeah, they did, their ship was completely destroyed. Um, and so, and there, there's increasing cases of um, kind of military provocation. And so I think we're no longer kind of at a place where people are debating on this territorial issue with just language alone. And so because the Philippine government in particular has has kind of long been, um, you know, subservient to, to U.S. interests, um, there's a long history of, um, of course, colonialism. But then even after the Philippines was granted, you know, quote unquote, independence, there have been different um, policies, trade policies, political policies, military uh, collaborations that have kind of kept Philippine politics under the thumb mm -hmm. of the U.S. And so. Definitely, there's um, kind of a, uh, a desire for, for a lot of Philippine politicians to want to accept U.S. aid. Um, and that's kind of the, the, what people are caught uh, between. That, uh, for Anakbayan, for other Filipino activists that really see the U.S.'s real interest in this, um, like Tina was saying, that it's not just about... Um, it's, they, they really don't have a right to interfere. But then when uh, there are so many politicians and powerful people in the Philippines who are saying that, uh, you know, it, it would be best for the U.S. to interfere and come in and say, you know, quote unquote, save the Philippines, then that's where the Philippines really gets caught in, in between these um, powers. Um, what's, so what's Anak Bayan's policy stance in, all, in, in this? 
Yeah, Anak Bayan is uh, so Anak Bayan is a grassroots youth and student organization, and so it's uh, Anak Bayan USA is the largest overseas chapter of Anak Bayan in the Philippines, um, which has been there for decades. It just celebrated its twentieth um, anniversary last year, and so um, our stance is uh, we're an anti-imperialist organization, and so we really see, um, of course, the continued U.S. aggression is something that we uh, have been continuing to fight against. But then, as I mentioned. Um, we see uh, aggression coming from China as well. Um, it's not just military in the West Philippine Sea, but it's also economic aggression in terms of um, really onerous uh, foreign debt for for certain infrastructure projects that the that the government is trying to engage in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's how do we how do we really fight for kind of sovereignty, self determination in a situation where. Um, the Philippines is sandwiched in between two of the the world's biggest powers right now that each want a claim to uh, the resources, not just in the West Philippine Sea, but um, the economic resources, etc., uh, that the Filipino uh, that the Philippines has to offer. But isn't that just kind of the, the position? Then is your you're just that your position is that you're stuck? Do you know what I mean? Like, is 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 it is it pro U.S. intervention or is it anti U.S. intervention? I think is my question. Anti anti U.S. intervention. I think. I mean, you know, this is this is the the story of like uh, marginalized oppressed communities all over the world. That um, do we need um, a larger power to come and save us, or do we build people power from the grassroots? And so, um, I think uh, we don't view the Philippines as stuck. We we think that um, if we can organize folks, if we can organize our community. Um, there have been so many. I mean, the Philippines is the Asia's first example of a, an anti-colonial revolt that was successful. Um, it's the it, it has it's the site of the longest-running uh, civil war um, in in the Asia Pacific. It's the site of um, huge demonstrations of people power. And so, um, Anak Bayan and and myself don't don't view like the power of the Filipino organized Filipino people as something to. Um, you know, underestimate, even if we're talking about two of the world's biggest superpowers right now. So it sounds like the path forward then is to really throw support behind uh, ASEAN, the ASEAN uh, power. I, I don't know what, what to call that. Uh, I guess that's basically like structured as a, an, a cooperative of South, South and Southeast Asian countries as a negotiating power to hold against imperialist uh, aggression from all sides. What are the countries in that? I think it's it's uh, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, I believe. Uh, is Taiwan in that? Teen, do you know? No, I don't think so. But I think Indonesia is. Yeah, yeah Indonesia. No, I, I don't think Taiwan is. Okay. Yeah. Singapore, I think that perhaps, Cambodia sure. and Laos have backed China. So, so the way forward in that case, to, as a as a matter of policy, then. Um, considering that the stance is to be anti, uh, both anti-aggression and anti-aid, given how given that aid tends to be really poisoned, um, then this is the way forward. Then to support basically unionizing uh, the smaller economic partners in the region to hold off uh, aggression from the bigger powers. Is that is that correct? I I know that Vietnam and the Philippines have allied with each other. Vietnam has a lot of beef with China too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really messy situation there right now, and I, I do agree that uh, um, it, it's something that's best dealt with by the the parties involved and kind of like cut out people who really don't have a, a stake for anything there. The tricky thing with uh, ASEAN is that the U.S. is also still heavily involved in that. Uh, their last summit, I forget how many years ago, but uh, Trump made a huge appearance, and there was. Um, yeah, it, it was hosted in the Philippines and, and it garnered huge protests from um, Filipino people that Trump was visiting their country. Um, and um, yeah, so even though the, the U.S. isn't kind of a member organization, it's kind of similar to how, you know, the U.S. is kind of involved in every single um, regional formation of different countries in the world because it just has its... It, it had that much power going into to forming a lot of these things. So it is something that is um, also tricky to navigate that that um, that formation. Do you have a sense of uh, what the what public opinion is like in the Philippines? How uh, 
like if we're talking about you know pro U.S. intervention versus anti, like what what percentage of the population would say they would be in favor of interventionism on beha behalf of the Philippines over this territorial dispute? It's hard to say. I mean, I don't I don't have exact numbers. I think it it falls kind of a lot of it falls along class lines. I mean, the Philippines is largely still an agricultural economy. Um, uh, three-fourths of the population are still actually like peasant farmers uh, there's like a small workforce and then a, a majority of like what we would probably consider as like middle-class folks live in um, the cities the, the different cities that are scattered across the islands and so um, because the education system um, in the Philippines is kind of culturally set up to um, talk more favorably about the US I mean the education system in the Philippines is patterned after the U.S. is uh, during um, American colonialism. Uh, that's how they set up the schools, the universities, the colleges, etc. And so, for a lot of folks who, um, you know, have have gone through that education system and and are are taught um, many times lies about uh, history, um, there is that tendency to favor or, or look favorably upon um, like a U.S. solution to this. Um, among other folks, for example. Um, uh, workers who are being exploited maybe by U.S. companies like Dole, Del Monte, a lot of mining companies. Um, the situation is obviously a lot less favorable to that. Uh, one of the Philippines Supreme Court justices, Antonio Carpio, has called for a truth movement to push back against China. This is because the Chinese government has, he, has perpetuated what he calls the fake news of the century by teaching its people that China has owned the West Philippine Sea for over 2,000 years and that the Chinese government also believes that complying with the court's decision will mean betrayal of their ancestors. Like that's what they're pushing out there. So that's resting on a historic, like a claim to history then? That's what they're pushing, yeah. Oh, okay. But I mean, I'm, I was confused by that ruling. Um, what, what power does the Hague have over that region? It's, it, it was, it's based on... It's a ruling on the UN. There's a there's like a UN. I don't know. This maritime law is really confusing. But there's there's uh, some sort of UN charter, law of the open seas, or something like that. And it's it's granted, uh, I guess this this arbitration um, this arbitration that happened at the Hague was under that UN CLOS law. But the arbitration has no right of enforcement, right? Like it, they don't have a military to go and you know, force China to comply uh, because the concept of international law at the sovereign level is sort of ridiculous. So, you know, they claim to have jurisdiction. Uh, they probably have some sort of technical jurisdiction by their own law. But if you can't enforce it, then it's meaningless, right? So I think it's it's an arbitration that the Chinese, I think, didn't even show up to. So the uh, Beijing and Taiwan, kind of, neither of them acknowledged the ruling. Yeah, no, of course they wouldn't. I mean, th there's no way China would acknowledge the ruling of a Hague of a Hague arbitration uh, that they weren't even present for. Um, and so I think that they viewed it as, you know, and I think most people did view it as a symbolic gesture to say that the tribunal had independently reviewed the claims and had China part partaken in it and subjected itself to its rulings, it would have been ruled against. All right, and so... You know, I don't know, and I guess this is about the nine dash line and whether whether that has any real historical basis. It doesn't seem to. I don't think that there's a hugely strong claim there. Uh, and you know, it's a you know I don't know what to say about it other than uh, how you know what I guess the question is how exactly are they is the best way to resolve this. Because I think that the more the U.S. is brought, where outside forces are brought, I don't want to say just the U.S. now because now freaking Russia's there. But, you know, it's, it's ratcheting up um, uh, military tensions in the, South, in the West Philippine Sea. And that's just not a good thing, I don't think. Like, because now it's primarily going to be a battleground. And the rights, you know, to, to imagine that the U.S. is there on behalf of Filipino fishing communities is... I think a bit naive. I don't think they care. 
that's of course that's going to be how it's sold so it's going to it is going to attract popular support and a lot of attention because it flatters uh uniquely american sensibilities because that's part of the american mythos the peacekeepers bringing democracy blah blah freeing brown people blah 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 um but the reality is going to be it's if there is intervention it's either to further american military interests and in this in this case highly likely that's serving us economic interests which are not in line with uh, the best interests of the philippines as the last yeah but years in, in, but in in thinking about in thinking about the well-being of those communities i would think that probably the worst thing that could happen to um you know people who make a living off the sea uh is a war on their sea uh, you know, I think I think it's always those communities that suffer the most uh, when there's a war. So I think I don't know. If, from my perspective, the most important thing right now is to avoid a damn war over there. And it seems like that that ratchet keeps turning the wrong way. You know, and and you know, it, it, to me, it almost doesn't really matter. Like, you know, oh, are the Chinese going to be more? Uh, agreeable or easy to work with when it comes to sussing out economic issues and territorial issues when they're at war. Because once they're at war, it's just literally these things don't matter to anyone anymore, right? Like they've, everything becomes a second priority and there's only ever enough uh, energy to put it, or, you know, urgency to put into the first priority, which is to wage war. And of course, you know, it's the it's the people that live off of you know live off of that territory who are going to suffer the most so i mean that's true I'm, and that I'm also that raises another tough question which is you know how much do you sacrifice in the name of preventing war because it seems like in this case um speaking on behalf of philippine interests here it seems like um stuck between a rock and a hard place right like or selling peter to pay paul um accept U.S. military intervention, uh, but then but then have to be subservient to U.S. interests. Um, it, it seems like there's a huge sacrifice being asked either way, and it's gonna ha and it's the demand is that it be paid by the Philippine people. Yeah, I mean, e even without the the this dispute in the West Philippine Sea. Um, it's been kind of clear that the U.S. is is gearing up for uh, war. I mean, in the past two years, there have been a lot of statements made by um, some of the the commanders of uh, of the basically like the the U.S. has like major military command outposts that, that kind of split up the world, and and the one in in charge of um, the Asia Pacific is called U.S. PACCOM, um, U.S. Uh, Pacific Command. And so um, they've been talking for a while about how instead of focusing on um, kind of war in the Middle East is that they um, need to start focusing on um, uh, war in the Asia Pacific. How do we prepare the military um, not necessarily for um, these kind of like long drawn out, quote unquote, like terrorist wars of attrition, but uh, making decisive battles. And so there's been uh, hundreds of, of billions of dollars being pumped into the Navy, the Air, the Air Force, um, to, to um, these huge, um, you know, potential military operations. There's this, this great article in The Nation that just came out recently about, um, let me try to find the title. It's called uh, The U.S. Military is Preparing for a New War. And it's all about how the U.S. has been kind of building up for for war in the Asia Pacific, and so it's, it is really frightening because it is these communities in the Philippines, in Vietnam, in in, in Taiwan, other places, Indonesia that are going to be affected the most by it. I mean, that's the first thing that I heard. Um, well, that went through my head, um, and this is during the Obama years, uh, Obama's pivot to Asia. Yeah, yeah, that was a huge thing. Um, when Hillary Clinton was still Secretary of State, she she came out with this. Um, you know, very clear message. I think it, it landed on like foreign policy, the U.S. pivot to Asia. Um, so yeah, that was even before Trump um, that that the the U.S. had its eyes set on the Asia Pacific as kind of the next theater for for war, uh, for not just war. I mean, war is tied to like economic.
Singapore said that the region needs China economically, but it also needs the U.S. strategically to maintain the balance. Yeah, I mean, I think this is all consistent with uh, broader, you know, this broader idea of containing China. Um, it's the same sort of, you know, George Kennan containment policy that the U.S. had used against the Soviets. That's probably the biggest. That's that's like the biggest priority for the U.S. endgame, right? Yeah, it's like part of its grand strategy, right? And 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 the pivot to Asia was was both military and a huge economic program called TPP that um, you know was meant to create a sort of U.S. centered trading block where all of the biggest you know trading trading uh, partners uh, in Asia would be aligned within a system that excluded China. So that it it was all about asserting U.S. relevance. Uh, in Asia as a sort of counterbalance or as from, you know, as a sort of counterbalance to Chinese power in the area. And I think that raises a question, I think, because a lot of the countries that were eager to sign on to TPP, uh, which was most of Asia outside of China, um, are welcoming, um, you know, American power in the in the area. And I and I think that, um long term, you know, is that the right solution? Is is there a need for you, you know, for US to project its power into Asia? Um, or is it that without US, that China would become some sort of local colonialist empire, kind of like the Japanese were, uh, and then go on to sort of uh, just sort of, you know, violently dominate the area? Um, you know, I think there's a fear of that, whether that would actually happen, I don't know. But I think that it's that image of China, that fear of China being, you know, essentially like the Japanese uh, during the you know imperial years of Japan, that sort of keeps the U.S. sort of invited to the to the barbecue, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, one one of the biggest examples of of that is the um, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, the kind of maritime and also land based uh, trading route that's the all this infrastructure is being built to kind of facilitate um, inter-country trade um, uh, with China. And, and, you know, it was kind of seen as a, a direct competitor to the TPP since, they, yeah, China wasn't invited to it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the the kind of military buildup that, that accompanies that, the, you know, to, to protect the economic infrastructure that's being built, um, is something that is, I think, very worrying in terms of uh, uh, a rising power. How, how does China consolidate its power even further, just as like um, Russia is consolidating its power up in, in Eastern Europe? Um, the U.S. is trying to consolidate its power by um, sending more and more ships or having more and more military exercises. And so, um, yeah, it's not just the Philippines, but a lot of countries are in, in Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific are kind of... Um, yeah, caught in this question of, um, you know, not to use the same phrase that like a lot of people use during the U.S. elections, but this kind of idea of the lesser of the two evils. Um, is it, does this dichotomy exist um, of, between the lesser of two evils? And I think it it will be like the, the main goal or project or, or task, I think, of people who are worried about this is to, you know, break free from thinking about that dichotomy and start thinking about how do we start organizing our folks to assert, um, assert what uh, people in the Philippines, people in Indonesia, people in wherever have you um, really need and assert their sovereignty um, in the face of, of uh, aggression from kind of all sides. I mean, so, so TPP and Belt and Road, you're saying in that construct being forms of imperial aggression? I definitely, the, T, the TPP, I mean, uh, the U.S. was, of course, like a huge actor in that, but even Australia and New Zealand. Um, I know a lot of the Pacific Islander communities we were working with were super worried about um, the TPP because of the influence that that might have. Um, Belt and Road, I know um, there are a lot of countries that are also worried about um, uh, the, the effect, economic, economic effects that you know, this kind of free trade doctrine would have. Um, knowing that, yeah, it's had disastrous effects in NAFTA and, and other but, kind of regional trade agreements. But that's too. a question that I have, which is, um, and maybe this is your, this is the, what you're advocating for. But you know, TPP is a completely, you know, voluntary thing. I mean, no, no one was forced to join it, um, and so th I guess it's not an issue 
it doesn't seem as of sovereignty, but of politics and whether uh, the government of a particular sovereign nation wants to join a free trade bloc or whether they want to assert more national independence. And uh, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that countries were free to join or not join the TPP. I'm sure I'm sure the U.S. and its allies were, were putting a significant pressure on countries to join. Um, but, you know, it couldn't force countries to do it. Right. So is it a question of sort of local or, or, or national politics to say, you know, does and maybe this is a big question, right, is 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 does the Philippines want to be have a more assertive, uh, independent uh, position in the world or does it want to be part of a larger grander project and it seems like it's never that easy to say like you know one is necessarily better than the other um it's it's always kind of like a choice that that every uh you know every leader is going to be faced with right and yeah i mean it's definitely voluntary i think the the question then becomes kind of twofold one is the if we're talking about the tpp are the um stipulations of the TPP actually equal in terms of who will all parties equally benefit from this uh, trade agreement? Um, and not just talking country-wise, but um, within a country. Um, how are different sectors of society, different classes of society differently impacted by something like the TPP? Obviously, um, the big business people in the Philippines are hugely going to benefit from something like TPP. Whereas the people who are working in um, special economic zones, kind of like the maquiladores in, in the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, they suffered hugely from NAFTA. Um, kind of like, um, I mean, TPP was often referred to as NAFTA on steroids, right? Um, and then the second question on, um, you know, this kind of volu voluntary nature of the TPP, it's true that I think the governments um, can voluntarily opt in or out. Um, but then it becomes a question of, um, is it kind of the people's will? Uh, is, is the government accurately representing the, the desire of the people to either join something or not? Um, and I think in a lot of cases, in the, in the, I mean, just speaking in the Philippines, oftentimes the government will choose something that benefits uh, corrupt politicians, corrupt business people, and not so much prioritize the needs of um, people who are in poverty. So speaking of leaders, um Duterte. Yes. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about that guy. <laughs> Where to even begin? Um, so it seems like he's he has he is steering the Philippines towards closer alliance with uh, uh, with China, Chinese business interests. You mean like build, build, build? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it sounds like there's a lot of Chinese backed uh, development in the Philippines. Is that is that correct? Yeah, he was betting that an avalanche of Chinese investment through build, build, build would create jobs and increase everybody's incomes. But I mean, so is this part of the uh, the de the the big debt that the Philippines technically owes to China? I think um, I think the Philippines right now is so there. There are a couple of different infrastructure projects, yeah, that um, that Chinese loans are are helping to fund. So. One of the big ones is like a, a dam project that um, has gotten a lot of kind of criticism uh, because of the, the interest rates on the loan um, compared to uh, Chinese loans with like, let's say Japan, much lower uh, interest rate that in the loans giving that China's giving to Japan versus the Philippines. And so, um, yeah, Duterte has been kind of open to uh, not, you know, having more foreign investment from other countries besides the U.S., um, but it's interesting because it's, that doesn't also mean that, um, they're still not accepting aid from, from the U S. Um, and so, uh, I mean, Duterte is, uh, there's a lot of things wrong with this guy. Um, just one of them being that he's kind of selling, selling out to whoever the, the highest bidder is, whether it's for infrastructure projects or military aid. Um, he's like playing his cards. Is he playing China and the U S in this? Yeah, I think he's he's the one getting played though. Uh, I just don't know if he realizes it yet. Is there is there evidence like is is so is he on track to become um another Marcos? Yeah, I mean, um 
what Marcos was kind of most famously known for was uh, martial law. And I mean, there's been martial law on a third of the Philippines um, for um, years now um, in Mindanao after this um, uh, 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 ISIS incident that, that um, supposedly happened in, in Mindanao and, and it's continued to be extended year after year. Um, and people are calling it, um, we were talking with some activists in the Philippines who aren't part of Mindanao. Mindanao is like the southernmost island, um, but people who aren't part of that island are kind of saying like, well, there might not be martial law declared, but it's de facto martial law um, because of things like the drug war. It's kind of the most infamous thing where, you know, almost 30,000 people have been killed through this uh, drug war without due process. There's huge um, spike in the killing of kind of, uh, journalists, political activists, anyone who's trying to um, spread truth about what's happening in the Philippines. And so um, there's there's real martial law in, in Mindanao, but de facto martial law kind of across the country. And um, he's, Duterte himself kind of idolizes the Marcos family. He, he's kind of instrumental in politically rehabilitating that family after they'd been kind of shunned from Philippine politics for, for the longest time. There's like a romanticization of the Marcos era. And it's scary because one of the big things that the Marcos era, that Marcos supporters cite is kind of these big infrastructure projects, which Duterte is replicating right now. Um, even if the Philippines is still paying off debt from those infrastructure projects under Marcos. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of history showing itself again. Just we had talked earlier before, and you seem to be pretty convinced that U.S. and China are heading towards actual war. And you're pretty concerned about that. Can you, what, why are you so fearful of that? Um, why do you think that this is going to end in actual war? I mean, the thing about these sorts of conflicts, uh, you know, it's covered by the concept of the Thucydides trap. Um, and if you look at it through, through history, one of the exacerbating factors in that is that these aren't quick uh, conflicts. They don't come to a head immediately. Right. These are actually very long, drawn out, gradual escalations with um, of a flashpoint that acts as a pretext for act for conflict. Right. So I'm not actually convinced that we have the generational memory to if we were to commit to not going to war, at least on the U.S. side, I'm not sure we have that kind of cultural uh, memory to be able to continue uh with diplomacy, um, with de-escalation. I don't either. I mean, the Vietnam Wars, you know, Vietnam Wars started off a uh, bad pretext over, you know, some ships getting rammed or, or attacked and never happened. And it seems like we're just like recreating that whole dynamic on purpose by like almost daring people to ram our ships. I mean, the U.S. depends on... Um, military conflict as an engine for economic progress for one thing it's they're close they're so closely tied we we need war to keep things running uh we also need to be on top to maintain our standard of life which is gradual and that's a total lie too other countries have far surpassed the u.s but this is the lie that needs to be this is the lie that needs to be told so we're kept just anxious enough that we're that we are worried about slipping. We've already slipped, but that's once you acknowledge that, then there's nothing more to it. But it's the fear of slipping. We're going to be kept anxious that we're not number one long past the point where we're not. Like objectively, we're not. So there's just too many factors at play uh, to prevent uh, that. That I, I'm not really convinced that it's. That commitment to de-escalation and diplomacy is ever going to be more than uh, just either a very vocal, active resistance to a larger imperial machine. I'm just not convinced that it's going to have much effect once it gets to the top. Uh, once it gets to the top of the political chain of power, uh, because the system as it is, it requires American aggression to maintain quote its territory. And American territory is the entire planet. This is this is what we are raised to think of as the American birthright. Um, it's the entire planet. 
there is no room for a China to to exert control over its sovereignty. There's no room for the Philippines to exert autonomy. This runs counter to U.S. interests. And if you're actually sitting at the top, if you're making decisions on behalf of the entire country, uh, given all, given everything that feeds into our economy and the way our society runs. Uh, the only decisions that they could possibly make is to keep aggressing. And this is on behalf of the American people. As a whole, as an entire country, we're complicit in this because our well-being kind of depends on us keeping down a whole lot of other people. Yeah, I sadly I do agree with you just because I, I just can't see the U.S. doing anything but being aggressive and uh, short-sighted and being driven by largely internal political matters. Like we're not, we don't seem to be really driven by a view of how we actually think the world should be run. Like it would be one thing if the U.S. was this hegemon that actually tried to run the world in some sort of like rational way. But it seems like we're both super powerful and we have, you know, a Navy that can span the globe and, and exert power wherever we want it. But for what? how do we govern ourselves? Like, how is the whole system uh, subject to politics? And it's all subject to, you know, just a, this melodrama in Washington where everyone's trying to be tougher than the other person. And there's no room for rational thought. There's no room for taking the big view, the long, the big picture, and, and trying to, um, you know, find optimal solutions that where everyone benefits. It's just, you know, a dick measuring contest in D.C. to show who's tougher on China, who's tougher on Russia, who's, you know, you know, who's not going to, uh, you know, be be cucked on the, you know, on the global stage or whatever. And that's all it is. Like, that's the only thing that I see really motivating um, decision making in Washington these days. Uh, so, yeah, I, I feel rather hopeless about it. But honestly, I feel hopeless because I feel like the U.S. is, is you know, our political... Our, our political horizon has just like collapsed down to literally what's going to be in the news tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation in the U.S. is it, it's interesting because as, as the world is kind of crumbling because of different economic crises, there's war all over. I mean, it, the, the U.S. isn't spared from that. I mean, the U.S. is in its own crisis um, year after year, even if if some people are in economic prosperity. And so... Um, you know, one thing that we say in, in Anakbain is that imperialism and, and the U.S. is, we say that imperialism means war, meaning that um, if if uh, a country is to try to sustain, um, like what you're saying, Jess, if a country is trying to sustain its economic status for, uh, you know, the, the wealthiest, uh, that kind of livelihood, um, sustain its policies on intervention, things like that. It necessarily means that it eventually has to go to war for those things. Um, and and talk about the higher ups. I mean, the this, the Department of Defense has been gearing up for war. Um, I mean, has been a, a kind of par, uh, uh, department for war. But especially mo most recently, the, I think the term that they're using right now is um, this this idea of uh, great power competition is this next phase of war that they're envisioning, meaning to say that they, they see that their, their power is being threatened on a world scale. And so they're, they're adjusting the budget, they're adjusting um, the research, the, the production, the war production to accommodate this kind of great power competition. And so whether, yeah, you're, whether you're like Jim Mattis or whether you're Hillary Clinton, um, it's, it doesn't really matter if, if your party is for war and, um, Historically, I mean, the, the both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have been parties for war, um, and it's it's taken what you are saying like a revolution, the the huge anti-war movement during Vietnam. Um, I know that's a, a big question that people have right now. How do, how do we create a similar anti-war movement um, that can call our government out for for making all these decisions that are harming? People, you know, the, the military budget that they propose for 2020 is $750 billion. Um, huge amount that, uh, meanwhile, people don't have health care. Meanwhile, people don't have education. Student debt is over a trillion dollars. Um, so there, there's basis really for people to start organizing. It's just up to 
um, organizers in the community to really start banding, banding together, um, figuring out how all these different issues that they're facing are linked to an issue like uh, increasing war, increasing um, economic aggression abroad, um, because it, it also affects um, their lives at home. And so I think that's a big question for Anak Bayan and a big question for a lot of the other allies that we're working with here in the States too. So far, all the major superpowers have managed to avoid military conflict, but that threat will continue to linger. War isn't inevitable, but based on history, this sort of clashing between a rising power and an established power has unfortunately typically led to war. For the audience, check the episode show notes for links to follow today's guests on social media and check out some of the articles on the topics that we talked about. Um, yeah, if people want to check out um, uh, our podcast, Jess, Jess and I uh, are, are just two people that are involved in it, but there's quite a few others. Uh, the podcast is called Escape from Plan A, and you can find it um, linked off our main page, which is planamag.com. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, Asian-American social justice issues. We talk about politics. Um, and we do talk about things like this. We, we, did, a, we did an episode recently about the trade war. Bayan USA is, uh, like I said, a grassroots uh, youth and student organization. We're fighting for uh, rights and welfare of Filipinos here in the States. So whether that's education, housing, immigration rights, um, but we're also linking that to our um, the issues in the Philippines and how those are related to what our families struggle, the history of like resistance there, and, and how do we really fight for uh, real independence, real democracy in our motherlands. And so uh, anyone between ages 13 and 35 can join. Adria and I are also part of the Malaya movement, and we are planning a big action in D.C. and nationwide on July 22nd. Uh, we'll be protesting Duterte's State of the Nation address, and there will be a lot of build-up events leading up to that big action as well. Uh, you can check out all the information in the episode show notes. That wraps up another episode of the Aesthetic Distance Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter to find out about any upcoming events I've got going on. And we will be back next week.